Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can come today to this place and take opportunity to open up your word. Lord, we thank you that you gave us your word, to be a light to our feet, to a lamp to our path or way. We thank you, Father God, as the means by which we can cleanse our way too. And we thank you, Father God, that your word gives us light. And we pray today that you would open up the word of God and that, Lord, you would, through your spirit, take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives. Lord, may we learn that which you would have us to learn from your word. May we be challenged by its truth. Give me wisdom, I pray, that I would speak only that which you'd have me to say, and that, Lord, that I'd be able to clearly present your word this morning. We might give the sense thereof, that, Lord, we might receive from you that which you have for us, and we might be blessed by your truth today. Guide us now, we pray, as we spend time in your word, for this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we re-enter God's courtroom here in Romans chapter 2, we find that the trial before God, the righteous judge, continues. And when we've come to chapter 2, we found that the second defendant, the first defendant in chapter 1, the heathen sinner, the second defendant, has taken his place next to his counsel. In this case, it's the civilized or the moral sinner. The defense has stated that his client is not guilty. Because he is a good man and that he's done many good works. Defense declares that surely that is enough to get his client into heaven. The prosecution disagrees, declaring that he is also guilty, declaring in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore thou art excusable, O man, wherefore thou art the judges, wherein thou judgest another that condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Effectively, he says he's also without excuse. Apostle Paul states that all the good works that a person does is not good enough. For even with all the good works a person does, he is still guilty before a holy God and without excuse. And the Apostle Paul, in the next 16 verses, presents many proofs and many witnesses to prove that the civilized sinner is indeed lost and without excuse. First, he says that he is without excuse because they do the same thing as the heathen. That's verse 1. Thou art excusable, O man, wherein thou doest thou judge, wherein thou judge another, for thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judges doeth the same things. And secondly, he says, God knows the heart, in verses 2 through 16. And in these verses, he gives to us six great principles of judgment. The six great principles upon which God judges everybody in order to declare them sinners. And the first of those was that God judges according to truth in verses 2 through 4, which we saw last time. 
Now today we want to consider two more of these, and that is, secondly, not only according to truth, but God judges according to accumulated guilt. He judges according to accumulated guilt. Verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. These proud judges of others, these ones who say we're not like the heathen, we're moral, we're upstanding, we're civilized, we're not like the heathen. These moralists have become hard in heart. In other words, the declaration here in verse 5 is that they're hard in their own self-righteousness. They might be on their way to hell, but we're okay because we are self-righteous. We're not like the ungodly. The word hardness here in verse 5, but after thy hardness, is insensible to the touch or on which no impression is made by contact. It has the idea of a stone, and when you press a stone, you can't make any indentation to the stone. That's their hearts. No matter what God says, no matter what the Word of God says, no matter how much the Spirit of God convicts them of it, their hearts are like stone. They cannot make an impression on the hardness of their hearts. In fact, when applied to the mind, to the understanding here of this moral sinner it means a state where no motives make an impression where there is no softening to all the appeals made to it it doesn't matter how much time you talk to them about the fact they're sinners doesn't matter how much time you tell them they need the savior nothing makes an impression upon them because they're okay and if there is a god then he'll weigh my good against my bad and i'll make it anyway but everything's fine and here it expresses a state of mind where the goodness and the forbearance of God have no effect upon the unsaved. They refuse to turn to God no matter how much they see the hand of God, no matter how much people reveal to them, Almighty God, they refuse to acknowledge Him. He goes on to say, with hardness and impenitent heart. Impenitent heart. This is a heart which is not affected with sorrow for sin. No matter how much they're in the view of the mercy and the goodness of God, it doesn't have an impact upon them. There is no, there is no sorrow for sin. They, they live in this civilized world, and no matter how much wickedness they do, or how much wickedness around them there is, there is no sorrow for that sin and that wickedness. And we're told that these moralists treasureth up it says there in verse 5 but after the hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself the word treasureth up here means to hoard or to lay up and they hoard or they lay up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath they're accumulating guilt upon guilt upon guilt the the old account is getting larger every day Every day goes by, they're continually adding to the problem by their hardness of heart, their impenitent heart, by their unwillingness to acknowledge their sin, they're continually adding to it, they're accumulating guilt upon guilt, upon guilt, upon guilt. They're storing up, they're hoarding up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath. 
The point here is that as believers store up treasures in heaven by our works, these civilised moralists lay up punishment for themselves in the future. They're just adding to the consequence of their sin day by day by day. And the judgment of these ones will be revealed in the day of wrath. Notice what it says in verse 5. But after the heart, the hardness, an impenitent heart, treasure up unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God seems to imply the great white throne judgment. That day when all the dead, small and great, stand before the great white throne, those who are not saved, because those who are saved stand before the Bema Seat judgment during the tribulation, remember that. But at the end of the uh, time, when every man who has never trusted Christ stands before Almighty God, they stand before the great white throne, the books are opened, and they're judged according to their works. It's in that day. The revelation of the righteous judgment of God will be revealed, and they will be judged because of their sin. In that day, he will judge people after. This is verse 5, but after thy hardness, he'll judge them according to the hardness of their heart, to the lack of repentance. There will be degrees of punishment just as they are degrees of reward. And these moralists, these civilized sinners have simply added wrath upon wrath. They've accumulated guilt upon guilt. And in so doing, when they stand before God, the righteous judge, in that day at the great white throne judgment, they will be punished according to their hardness of heart and lack of repentance. Now, how dreadful the outlook for the sinner who takes God's earthly gifts and takes God's blessings for granted and doesn't think of God or thank God for them. Isn't that a picture of Western culture? We are what we are in the West because of what Christ did at Calvary because of the effect of Christianity upon our societies is why we have the civilized society we have. And yet the most despised people today by the West are usually Christians, born-again believers, who actually stand for righteousness. And our world in which we live, even our constitution is based upon the authority of God's word, we open up Parliament by saying the Lord's Prayer, and yet we don't care for this God that made our existence what it is. You could almost say that what the Apostle's describing here is the Western society just turned its back upon the very God that made it possible for us to live in peace and harmony like we do. Is there any wonder that it says in Hebrews 10.31 it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? You know, men and women today are unknowingly storing up 
or treasuring unto themselves wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath and for the day of God's judgment is revealed. And this is one of the reasons, beloved, why you and I should have such a concern for those around about us who don't know the Savior. You and I ought to be moved with compassion towards them. They, one day they're going to face Almighty God or the great white throne judgment and there will be no coming back. There will be no appeal. There will be no mitigating circumstances. They're heaving themselves wrath until the day of wrath when the day of judgment is revealed and when they stand before that great white throne judgment, it will be too late. And they will suffer at the hands of a mighty God. The God that loved them, the God that sent his son to die for them, will only put up with wickedness for so long and eventually they will pay for their sin. And that should stir our hearts to reach out to the lost. So the people will flee to Calvary where the judgment has already taken place. God sent his son to Calvary and he poured out his wrath upon him and judgment was taken care of. He died for sinners to be saved and we need to see people flee to Calvary. So that they might escape the wrath to come. Because if they don't, there is no escape. And that's a sobering thought. You and I really ought to be concerned about the lost. We need to ask God to give us a passion for souls, that the Lord would give you and I a real desire each day to pray, Lord, lead me to some soul today that I might share the gospel with them. Because one day it will be too late. God judges according to truth. God judges according to accumulated guilt. But God also judges according to works. Which is verses 6 through 11. Just verse 6 to start off with. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now this is an awesome and fearful thought. And it condemns the moralist or condemns the civilized sinner. As well as any other sinner. The fact that every person will be judged according to their deeds is taught through Scripture. And here in Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, we're told that we will be judged, every man will be judged according to his deeds. The word deeds there is works. God's ultimate standard or prerequisite for judgment is man's works. And notice what he says in verse 6. He says, who will render to every man. Judgment is individual. Each man having to come under the test of his own works. I will not be judged for you. You will not be judged for me. I will not be judged for anybody else. And they will not be judged on my behalf. Each and every person will stand before God in judgment based upon 
their own works. The believers will stand before the beamer seat judgment and our works will be tested as though by fire. The unsaved will stand before the great white throne judgment and they too will be judged according to their works. And then what the apostle does in verses 7 through 11, he gives to us a couple of hypotheticals to explain this to us. The first situation, or the first hypothetical, concerns those who are patient, uh, who have patient continuance. Look at verse uh, 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, eternal life. Those who have patient continuance, endurance, or steadfastness in well-doing. Those who seek glory and honor and immortality by endurance in good work. What will their reward be? Those who are faithfully doing that which is righteous, what will their reward be? Their reward would be eternal life. That's what he says in verse 7. To him, or to them who by patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. God will render to them eternal life. He reiterates this in verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This time he adds the word peace. Those who work in righteousness, those who by patient continuance and bring glory and honor and immortality. And those who have sought peace will receive eternal life. Now the idea is this. If there was one who genuinely did good at all times, they could merit eternal life of their own accord. If anybody could do good, at all time, for all their life, from the moment of their birth to the moment of their death, they could obtain eternal life. Now the question immediately springs to mind, doesn't it? Is this works doctrine? Is this works salvation that he's talking about? That if you do good, you can get eternal life? Well, the answer is no. I know it's no because other scriptures clearly state it to be no. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For the grace you saved through faith, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Even Romans chapter 4 tells us, But him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteous. Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. I don't think it's in any doubt that the Bible tells us that we can't get saved by works. So what's he talking about here? Because he just said it, didn't he? He said, let me read it again to you in verse 7, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, the reward for them is eternal life. So what's going on here? Well, Paul is simply explaining God's basis for judgment. If any individual could fulfill Romans 2.7 and Romans 2.10, God would have judged them righteous. 
Because, see, God is a fair judge and will rightly reward every man accordingly. Here we have set out for us in the word of God, God's parameters of judgment. God is a fair and righteous judge. And if anybody can live a righteous, godly life for all their life, God would give to them eternal life. God's a righteous judge. He will not judge any man wrongly. No one's going to stand before the great white throne and say, I'm not here on good premise. You've, you've got me here on false pretenses. I protest. God won't judge unfairly. And although God would give eternal life to the righteous, Paul goes on to show that none will ever reach that standard. Isn't that what Romans 3 is all about? Okay, let's go there. Romans 3, verse 9. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. As written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are, are, to come to, uh, are together, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So he spells it clearly that nobody does good. No, no one. The basis of God's judgment is man's works. And the sad truth is that all of mankind is found wanting. Romans 3.12 says, There is none that doeth good. Romans 3.23 says, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, the truth is, all mankind fits in the verses eight, uh, verses 8 and 9, not verses 7 and 10. The apostle here is not saying you can work for your salvation. He's simply saying God judges based upon works and all mankind condemns themselves because nobody lives in righteousness all the time. And so in verses 8 and 9, he gives us a second scenario in this uh, illustration where he says this in verse 8 and 9 but under them that are continuous contentious sorry and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also the Gentile God will also render justly to those referred to in these verses. These people are described as contentious in verse 7. Sorry, verse 8. But under them that are contentious. The word contentious means untoward or disobedient. They do not obey the truth. They do not obey righteousness. In fact, what they do is they obey unrighteousness. It says they're contentious and they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. To these God will render indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. That's what he says. But obey unrighteous. This is what they get. This is their reward. Indignation and wrath, tribulation, and anguish. The first two 
in this list, indignation and wrath, are God's reaction to man's sin. So because mankind is sinful and mankind has not acknowledged God and not been saved, because they rejected Jesus Christ as their saviour, the consequence of that is that they will suffer indignation and wrath. The second two refer to what the people will suffer themselves for their sin, which is tribulation and anguish. These will be upon every soul of man that doeth all the, that works out evil. It just says at the end there, verse, in part of verse 9, it says, Upon every soul of man that doeth or works out evil. And verses 8 and 9 explain the lot of every man, woman and child who's ever lived. We all are guilty sinners before a holy God. There is none of us who have lived in righteousness from the day we were born to the day we die. None of us are able to save ourselves. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one who can live up to the standard of God's righteousness. Therefore, there is nobody who can receive eternal life of themselves. We all are guilty sinners. And indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish await us without Christ. The point is that it is man's works that God judges. And because all of us fall short of this, this standard of God's goodness, God's wrath will come upon all who do evil. Without respect to persons, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This judgment comes to the Jew first in Romans 2.9, for the gospel came to them first. But after that, upon all men. There is nobody who stands outside of this realm of judgment. All of mankind, heathen sinners and moralist, civilized sinners as well, all mankind are guilty before a holy God because none can live up to the righteousness that he has established. Can't live up to his righteousness. The word indignation here in verse 9 comes from the idea of boiling up, having the meaning of a passion outburst. The word wrath comes from the idea of a swelling which eventually bursts and applies more to an anger that proceeds from one's settled nature. And what the apostles trying to do here, what the Lord's trying to do here is to explain to you and I that unbelievers will experience the full weight of the consequences of their sin when God judges them. Sin has a payday for the wages of sin is death. There's a consequence. And so the, what the, the writer is saying here is that as believers store up treasures in heaven by our works, so those people who reject Jesus Christ store up punishment for themselves. And the only way to judge men fairly is according to their works. That's what he's trying to spell out here. The judgment, the standard judgment is man's works. If man rejects Jesus Christ, who is the only means of salvation, if man rejects Christ, 
as, as the sacrifice made for their sin, if man rejects Christ, who wants to impute his righteousness to us, so that we stand in his righteousness, because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, if man rejects Christ, then the only means of judgment is God must judge their works, and God will see their works, and will judge them according to their works, and they will spend eternity in the lake of fire, because their works are not righteous. We need to remember that God judges righteously according to truth, according to accumulated guilt, according to works. Go with me to Revelation, please, chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And God will judge all mankind according to their works. And the reason for that, verse 11 of Romans chapter 2, is it says, for there's no respect of persons with God. God will judge Jew and Gentile. God will judge everybody equally because there is no respect of persons with God. God does not look at people and say, okay, well, I like him and I don't like her, or I like her and I don't like him, therefore I'm going to judge them based upon what I think. God says, my standard judgment is works. That even stands true for salvation, doesn't it? Because remember, it's the work of Christ on Calvary that satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God. And Jesus Christ was God incarnate. God manifested the flesh. And he lived on this earth for 33 years and he did no sin. There was no guile found within him. He was not a sinner. He was a sinless righteous man the god man and he went to calvary and there he died on the cross god poured his wrath upon him and because his work was sufficient we can be saved so even in that god's salvation god's judgment is based upon works he judged christ's works to be sufficient for salvation and if you don't accept his work upon calvary for your as your savior then you'll be judged based upon your works and your works will not get you to heaven. That's the point here. It's either the finished work of Christ, the righteous Son of God, that God accepts, and therefore we can be saved in Him, or we have to stand before the great white throne judgment based upon our works. And there's non righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's judgment on those who sin is the same whether they be Jew or Gentile. It means he will judge the Jew and the Gentile equally and will judge them fairly. All who reject Jesus Christ, reject his offer of salvation upon the cross of Calvary, will spend eternity separated from God, whether they be Jew or Gentile, because God 
will judge them according to their works. And their works will not get them to heaven. The unsaved will experience for eternity the consequences of their disobedience and their rejection of Christ. You see, what's been built up here in Romans chapter 2 is a picture of how badly we stand before a holy God. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And he's building up to those glorious passages in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. But you see, first things first, you've got to get a person lost before you can get them saved. So he spends three chapters showing us how lost we are. He spends two chapters spelling out that everybody is lost. He then tells us in chapter 3 that there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then chapter 4, he says, now let me tell you how you're going to say, particularly chapter 5, verse 1, being justified by his grace. You've got to get a person lost before you can get them saved. And he's making it clear here that mankind is indeed lost. I was thinking about this week, you know, there's not any great uplifting thing I can say about these passages. There's nothing really encouraging except the fact that you and I are saved in Christ. His finished work upon Calvary was satisfied the righteous man's holy God and by faith in him you and I avoid the great white throne and that's a blessing. But I did think it ought to stir our hearts to be a witness for him. You see the eternal state of the lost is not pleasant. And you and I should be so moved by that prospect that our friends, our neighbours, our family members are on their way to hell. We ought to be so moved by that prospect that you and I have such a passion for them that we pray for them, that we seek opportunity to witness to them and that we leave a godly testimony before them so that they might avoid the wrath to come by placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, mankind cannot avoid the judgment to come without Christ. Now with Christ, verse 10 can be true of Romans chapter 2, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. That can be true if you know Jesus Christ, your Savior. But without him, there is no hope. Christ needs to be our focus, beloved. The unsaved need to be our passion. You and I to pray that God gives us opportunity to share the gospel because how shall they hear without a preacher? They will not. God is the righteous judge and his judgments are fair. So we know that all who reject God will be judged fairly. And according to Romans chapter 2, if they do reject God, they will suffer the hands of God. 
Let's remember that God is fair and just in his judgments. Let the thought, thought motivate us to serve him faithfully. Let's go out and seek to rescue the perishing. It's indeed a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Father God, for its truth. Lord, we thank you for reminding us of how important it is that people know Christ, who to know is life eternal. For without him, judgment awaits. And there's only one consequence to that, and that's eternity separated from God. Lord, give us a passion for the lost. Give us an awareness of those around us who don't know the Savior. Give us the opportunities to witness for you. And may we see souls saved to your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name.